Hello, and welcome to our podcast, Twice Exceptional, Teens Exploring and Living with Neurodiversity. My name is Kate. I am 16 years old. I am gifted, and I have ADHD, hence the name of this podcast. In this episode, I am not including my brother, Patrick, who also has ADHD, but usually he's part of this as well. Also, it's important to know what the definition of neurodiversity is. Neurodiversity, of course, refers to the normal variations in the brain, such as ADHD, autism, dyslexia, and Tourette's syndrome. Today, though, we are going to mostly be focused on ADHD. So the name of this episode is How to School with ADHD. So in this episode, I'm going to be going briefly over ADHD, even though we went over it quite a bit last week in our ADD versus ADHD episode. And then I'm going to share some of my personal experiences with ADHD and how it relates to the school system. This may end up taking more than one episode because there's a lot to discuss when you're discussing the school system with ADHD. So we are going to split it up between in the classroom and out of the classroom. So ADHD, briefly, it stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. It's present in about 10% of kids according to most studies. There is some differences in boys and girls, but I'm going to be talking about gender in a different episode. And then also, it's important to know that the general symptoms are usually hyperactivity, impulsivity, and inattention, all of which can cause a lot of problems in school, especially if it's before you know you have the condition. So for this episode, I'm going to start with the the in-the-classroom differences. So the number one thing I have to tell you about in the classroom is you need to tell your teachers you have ADHD. I know some of you might not want to tell your teachers you have ADHD. In given certain situations, it might be okay if you don't. But for the most part, I find this to be a very helpful thing because if your teachers know you have ADHD, then they're able to conform more to your needs. And even if they can't conform to your needs, at least they'll be aware of why you're moving around or why you zoned out and be able to notice when you do such things and help you adjust in that type of a way. For example, a lot of my teachers, since they know I have ADHD, don't ask as many questions when I start moving around the classroom a lot more. I also find it helpful to tell my peers that I have ADHD. I don't like hiding the condition that much from people, but that is more of a choice thing because some people might judge you for having it, obviously, This is the real world. People are judgmental, but most people don't really care that much, I feel like, and I feel like it's very important to who I am for people to know I have ADHD, and I think it's, like, very important that the teachers know because it's helped me a lot. I'm doing pretty well in school right now, and part of the reason this year has been a lot easier for me than the past few years is because I've gotten way more comfortable with my ADHD. So the second part of the in the classroom stuff, I'm going to talk about some of the different options you have just as a general student who goes to a school if you have ADHD and you find it very difficult in classes. So depending on the level of difficulty you have and depending on the school you go to, you may have access to 504s and IEPs, but it is important to know the difference between 504s and IEPs. So IEPs are written documentation that describes services the school will provide and set specific learning goals for the students. And it includes 
the child's present levels of functioning and academic performance. So if you're doing well in school, it's going to be a lot harder for you to get this, obviously. But the thing about IEPs is IEPs are kind of different than 504s because 504s are not written documents. And 504s don't really move you to a different classroom. They're more just adjustments like if you need more time on a test or certain things like that that the teachers are then required to bring you. So IEPs, though, stand for Individualized Education Program. And 504s are a certain segment of, like, IDEA, which is the Individuals with Disability Educations Act. And there are a lot of different types of disabilities that fall under these categories, but I know a lot of people with ADHD that have 504s. So 504s are generally going to be the plan you're going to want to go with if this is an issue for you in school and you want the extra advantages, like more times on tests. They can also do stuff like give you notes ahead of time, things like that. If you want like separate note things or like access to your computer or like stuff like that and you have difficulty in school, 504s would be a good option for you. There are requirements to get 504s obviously and if you go to a private school it's different because private schools are not required to do stuff like this and I don't know if all public schools are required to do stuff like this but I know my school has 504 plans. So should you get a 504? It kind of depends on your situation, and can you? It also depends on your situation. For example, I have pretty good grades at the moment and have not had that many difficulties in school, so I would probably not be able to get a 504 very easily. So the third category I want to talk about for in-the-classroom learning is movement in the classroom. So why do we need to move? Not all of us do, actually, but those of us who have hyperactivity component or, like, to our ADHD tend to need to move around a lot just to like keep our minds focused. I know it may seem counterproductive to be like moving to keep our minds focused, but if I'm moving, then I'm able to actually pay attention because I need to be fidgeting around. I'm fidgeting around right now. That's why I keep hitting my leg even though you can't see it. And so how do you approach movement in the classroom? If you're in the classroom, of course, movement can be very distracting. And the teachers might not want you moving around necessarily, but if you ask them because you already told them beforehand about your condition, they're more likely to say yes. And then you can do things like I do, where in most classrooms where I don't have assigned seats especially, I like to sit near the edge of the front. I sit near the front because I don't like sitting in the back, but like I, I know students like sitting in different spots. But if you sit near the edge, then it's usually a little less distracting if you need to get up and fidget and move because you don't want to distract the other classmates. If your teacher says no, you can't move, there's not too much you can do about that because you're still going to end up fidgeting anyway. But if they let you stand up, that's always an extra advantage if they let you like stand up or sit on the floor or whatever. But you can still manage without it because there usually is time at other points during the day for you to move around. It's good to ask though. Alright, so the fourth part is to stay on task. So how do I pay attention is kind of the base of this area. So paying attention, of course, is difficult for us because it's not really inattention so much as like variable attention like I talked about in the previous episode that really is the issue for ADHD, which is why the name needs to be changed. But like inattention and variable attention Variable attention means that we're only going to pay attention when things really interest us a lot. And sometimes school is not that interesting, and then you're not going to pay attention, obviously. So how do you pay attention when the material does not interest you quite as much? 
Because sometimes when the material is really interesting, it's really easy for you to engage in the class and pay attention when the teacher's talking. But sometimes it's very difficult. I find it best to either do one of two things. Either take notes on what the teacher is saying in like fun ways to keep you interested. Or if you're not supposed to take notes during this section, still have something else around to use as a fidget while you listen. Or even if you just have a scratch piece of paper where you can like draw random stuff as you listen, I need the extra like level of distraction because same thing happens with tests. When I'm sitting in a silent room, I find it way harder to focus than when I like have light music on in the background. It, so like these are things that I've just found for me at least. I can get distracted very easily, but I also need extra distraction because I need my brain to be like working and stimulated and the quiet rooms just cause more distractions for me, honestly. So the big trick there is to just find something else to at least keep you somewhat busy motion-wise while your brain tries to focus on what the teacher is saying. So that leads us into our fifth section though, which is notes. So how do notes relate to all the rest of this? Well, like I said earlier, notes are very important when you're in class and taking notes during stuff will help you pay better attention because you have to actually write down the stuff. But how do you actually take notes is the bigger question, of course. Because taking notes is like, it can be boring at times, especially if you have to take specific notes the teacher writes. But the trick is you have to make the notes you take interesting because if they're boring you're never ever gonna pay attention to them again and your handwriting is gonna get really bad and you're not even gonna know what you said and you're not gonna remember the information so the trick is to make it interesting so how do you do this i like to use colors so i have like a specific note-taking system so i have like three or four colored pencils in my bag right the main ones, I have four, but I use three for the most part. So I have a pink, a teal, a purple, and a yellow colored pencil in my bag. So what I do when I take notes is I use the teal one to underline any headings I have when I write it. I use the pink one to underline any important information. And I use the purple one to underline any new vocab as I write it. Because if I add the color coordination and I have to think about that, it gives me some other reason to pay attention because I have to think actually about a different part and I'm making my brain actually think about what matters in this. And I found that works pretty well for me. Another strategy that works really well that will also go into studying is you need to come up with a weird analogies for stuff. Because the weirder the analogy is, the more likely you are to remember it. So, like, if you can come up with a bunch of super weird, super vague analogies, that's the best idea to go through. Like, for example, I had to do a map quiz once, right? And this was, like, a map of... I forget where it was. But, like, yeah, I had to, like, label a bunch of different countries on a blank map. It was in a social studies or history class. And I could not remember where certain ones were. And I was talking to my friend, and she's like, oh, okay, so this one's Belgium, right? So I like to think of Belgium as a half a waffle because someone already ate part of it. And so then I was able to remember where that was later because I was like, oh, yeah, it's where the half a waffle is. So that's why it applies to studying. But for note-taking, if you just remember certain weird ways you remember things, or if you do things differently than the teacher, that's fine. 
just write down notes to remind yourself or little like clues symbol words that'll remind you about the actual topic even if it doesn't relate to the actual topic itself. And then make sure you write down any important information. Try to paraphrase as much as possible because we don't need a whole paragraph. Paragraphs are intimidating and highlight important things. I like to do that by underlining, of course. And then, of course, write, write weird analogies. If you're an artist, you can draw pictures, but I'm not very good at art, so I don't do that for the most part. Final part of our in-the-classroom stuff is tests. So uh, there's a few issues that come along with tests, and I'm going to try to address each one of them. The first issue is the I can't sit still. Honestly, there's not much I can do about this issue. If you have a 504, you might be able to adjust, and if you talk to your teacher, you might be able to adjust. But I, for the most part, don't deal with that issue as much. I just have to, like, wiggle around without trying to disturb anybody else. I can't comprehend this right now is another issue. So one issue that at least happens for me, even though I know some people might also have dyslexia or something, which might also make it way harder to comprehend, but like for me, what happens is sometimes you just read a paragraph and you don't remember any of the information in the paragraph when you finish because you keep distracting yourself in the middle of the paragraph. So then you have to read it again and read it again. And honestly, just like the other one, there's not too much I can tell you to fix this issue. So one trick that I would do is I would I try to underline certain information in the paragraph to keep your mind on the paragraph at hand. I would look at the questions first if it relates to a paragraph. I would do stuff like that. That way your brain can try to get more engaged in the paragraph. Follow along with your pencil if you can because you need some sort of cue to get your brain to connect with the rest of your brain. And then timing of the tests. Okay, so this kind of can go both ways. As 504s, you get to have more time for tests, and some students, of course, need more time for tests. I am not one of those students. I know some students with ADHD might be, but I find for the most part that because my brain is constantly moving very fast, I read it, I comprehend it, I circle it, I'm done. I like just move, move, move through tests, and I don't like taking the extra time, especially to review my answers, because my brain just moves so quickly that I just move through the test, and I'm usually one of the first people done with tests, actually. There is an issue with this, however, that because I'm one of the first people done, the main issue is that I have to review my answers, and my brain does not like to go back and read over what I've already done because it's not interesting. I already finished it. But the thing is, I found a lot, especially in math. Math is my strongest subject. I've always been really good at math. That's part of the giftedness, actually, is mostly on the math side. But the thing is, I've done bad grades on math tests just because I messed up on, like, addition or subtraction or I missed a minus sign here or whatever. And a lot of times that happens because my brain is moving faster than my hand is moving. So that's why it's really important to go back and read. Of course, your instinct is usually correct for most tests, but sometimes there's some errors where you're like, I had no idea what I was thinking. And it's probably because your brain was just moving very fast. So if you can try to find a way to just slow down when you're doing it, that's usually helpful. If you have the other issue, of course, where you're a slow test taker, 
there's a lot of different strategies I can give you, but I'm not sure which ones are worth the best because I'm a fast test taker, not a slow test taker. But especially for us ADHD people, it is really important to review your answers because I know we don't want to look back at our answers, but there's a lot of times where you can make mistakes because your brain is just constantly in a state of motion and you just want to think about something else. And so if you go back and read over it, you might find a lot of errors. So I'm going to cover outside of the classroom in a different episode, and there's a lot of different stuff I'm going to cover in that one. So if you're interested in learning about my techniques for studying and how to prioritize information, listen to it next week. But for the next part of this week, I'm going to share our fun fact. Did you know there's a word for throwing someone out of a window? It's called defenestration. Defenestration comes from the defenestrations of Prague, the last of which led up to the Thirty Years' War. So, the defenestrations of Prague were three incidents in history in Bohemia, where people were defenestrated, which again means to be thrown out a window. So it happened three different times. And so, it was first used in English in a reference to Prague when Protestants threw two royal governors out of a window. And the first governmental defenestration occurred in 1419, and the second one in 1483, and the third one occurred in 1618. So they were all decently spread out. Usually people talk about the third when they talk about this though, because the third is the one that led up to the Thirty Years' War again. So the first defenestration of Prague involved the killing of seven members of the city council. So that's it for this episode of Twice Exceptional. Please join next time to hear me talk about the outside of the classroom study tips. But if you enjoyed this episode, please follow us on Instagram or TikTok at twice underscore exceptional podcast. You can also email us any questions or concerns at twiceexceptionalpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you.